Alright, welcome to Transit Matters, episode number 18. Uh, Transit Matters advocates for fast, frequent, reliable public transit in Greater Boston. And uh, I am Jeremy Mendelson. I'm a transit planner and geographer. And uh, I co I'm the co-founder and director of, or a co-founder and director of uh, Transit Matters. And uh, appropriately today, uh, I'm joined by John Edenucci, who is a longtime transit consultant. And uh, he's a researcher currently at the MIT Transit Lab and uh, now recently the chair of the Cambridge Transit Advisory Committee. So, John, thanks for doing this. Well, welcome to be here. I'm glad to be here, Jeremy. Great, and um, we, so I really wanted to talk to you because um, one, one thing that's been in the, new, the news lately has been uh, privatization of public transit, you know, a, pu a push for uh, privatizing of certain routes and, and the hope that they may, may reduce costs and, and vehicle uh, increased vehicle availability for other routes and among other things and you gave a interesting presentation of uh, I guess uh, some bunch of people's research at the last Cambridge Transit Advisory Committee meeting which we're, we're both on and um, so you were talking about some ways to increase transit service and uh, before we get to specifics or any of that I'm, I'm curious if you could just talk about um, explain because you've been doing this for a while you've been living here a while and I think you're kind of an expert on these things and what are the needs that, like, what do you see as the needs and deficiencies of the transit system right now? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, Boston's traditionally focused on its rail system, uh, rightly so, because most of the people do take the transit, do take the T subways and light rail system, uh, and fewer people take the buses. However, um, as we know, the, the cost of both upgrading and extending and expanding the rail system ha has become mostly prohibitive and, and, and it's ex extensive uh, cost to do that. So what we really think in terms of expansion, uh, the easiest way and the, and the least expensive way is to expand the bus system. Um, since 1990, the ridership on the whole MBTA system has grown dramatically. Uh, it's probably on the order of 30 to 40 percent since that time. And yet the hours of service both on the rail and the bus system have, have barely grown at all. Uh, so what's as a result, we have a lot more crowding. And uh, in, to the extent that on some of the busy bus routes, people can't get on the buses during the busiest times of the day. So it does point to the need for more bus service, both on the busiest services and in some cases where high growth areas where there hasn't been a lot of traditional service like the Boston Seaport um, and it's growing like crazy, uh, so there's got to be some type of service there. And what's really happened is private uh, commuter shuttles and, and, and employer uh, services have kind of uh, filled in the need, and that's appropriate, but at some point the need becomes multi-employer and, and, and you really need to have uh, some type of at least coordinated public service, uh, even if it maybe not is directly operated by the public. And one of the things you bring up is that a lot of these shuttles are attempting to fill gaps uh, that haven't been filled by the transit agency, and you know we have a lot of these routes that I would say probably most of the bus system is the same as the streetcar system was 100 years ago. Yeah. And so there are a lot of trips that are being made that, that are very indirect, that really, you know, the system is really not meeting a lot of the links that, that people need. Right. 
I think people that take transit, the thing they hate, hate the most is transferring. And while it makes sense sometimes to transfer from a bus to the rail because the rail is going a lot faster, transferring from bus to bus is, is not so nice <laughs> a lot of the times. And so what I think we want to look at is providing more direct services where you, where you can do it. Transferring works when you're, when you're transferring from a high-frequency service to a high-frequency service, but it doesn't work so well when you're transferring to a low-frequency service. So uh, I think that in the case there there are going to be some new routes that that would serve newly developed areas that that could be sustained from from the point of view of uh, the ridership uh, on the public system and and I think in the future planners are going to be looking to to find where that should be and where the where the services the bus services especially even in the urban core, should be expanded. Mm-hmm. And I'm, so I'm, one of the things I'm curious about is um, talking about some of the, some of the things that, that we can do to meet some of these needs. And I, I know that, we, that what's, what's been put out as far as this privatization effort or a proposal has been that the service is going, that, that some of the vehicles will be diverted away from the lower ridership areas or the express routes in favor of maybe private run coaches or smaller buses and those vehicles could be reallocated. Uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts on the proposal overall and do you think it's it's in the right direction? Is it going to make a difference? Yeah, I, I think it's a good idea from the perspective of anything that ne- results in a net increase in bus service I, I think is badly needed. So, so if they take some of the larger buses off of, of lightly used routes and replace them with smaller buses. Uh, that makes a lot of sense, as, uh, you know, that with the stated intention that that the buses are put back into service in in the heavier demand areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, why maybe maybe segueing off of that is um, why do we need to have, go to the private sector to do some of these things, some of the things that you mentioned, and, and some of the things that the proposal puts forward. Um, why do we need to go to the private sector, or, or do we? Well, right now, uh, the MBTA is constrained with regard to their facilities for maintaining and 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 storing buses. Uh, quite frankly, they they don't have any place to put, you know, twenty more buses. Uh, the the garages are at capacity. Uh, it's very difficult to to site and 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 develop a, a new bus garage. Uh, and so the private sector can do that much more quickly and, and frankly, own sites that, that are used now uh, for that, that purpose. So, so you can get service on the ground much more quickly, uh, and, and that constraint is, is a significant one for, for the Boston area right now. And so the... I mean, would it, would it make sense for the T ultimately to... Expand to grow its fleet, to maybe even to have smaller buses, or, or at least just to just to grow its fleet to increase the service. Or do you think that there is a lot of service out there that really just isn't being well used and could be rearranged? I I don't think that in terms of peak vehicles, uh, there that there is much slack. Uh, I think that most of the service has been. Um, 
repaired over the over the years. There might be some services in in the off peak hours that aren't heavily used, but I, I don't think we can go down in terms of the number of vehicles. And and once you have once you're talking about the the total number of vehicles going up, you do have these capacity constraints with regard to the facilities and and the maintenance capabilities. Uh, so. I think the private sector is the natural place to go to do this. Uh, I'm not saying that the MBTA shouldn't uh, be looking for another site for for a, a significant bus garage, uh, maybe a site that that reduces the amount of deadhead miles and hours that that they have on some, from some of the garages. I think they should still be actively doing that, but just have to be realistic about how long that will take. And so I I suspect that. You know, to meet some of the needs in high growth areas like the Boston Seaport District and Kendall Square, to increase service, you actually have to take advantage of the private sector because they can do it much more quickly. So, what does that look like? Uh, what are what are the? Oh, maybe you can talk really quickly about some of the existing private operations that exist now and and what uh, new services might yeah, look like. I think that the private services come in a variety of of packages right now. One is there are some established private routes that carry a lot of people um, and they're they're actually kind of uh, semi-public routes. Uh, The Easy Ride service, for example, from North Station to Cambridge uh, filled a gap in the MBTA system that was very difficult to, to travel from. All the commuters come into North Station in order to get to Cambridge, they used to have to go in on the green line and come back out on the red line. Um, that added congestion to the core subway system as well. Uh, and so the need was was actually recognized by a number of employers in the, in the Cambridge area and the city is, itself. And, and they started this this test route called Easy Ride to, to serve that. Uh, it's been extremely successful. Uh, it's now at at the frequencies that are at, at the same level as some of uh, yeah, the like MBTAs, every seven, every seven or eight minutes, yeah. yeah. Um, and that that route does allow the public to ride, but it's not fully integrated with the MBTA system, so the, the fares are clearly not integrated. It, you have to pay cash. Um, and it, it's and it's not well known to the public that they can ride that route. Um so right now it's being paid for fully by uh, the employers that benefit from it uh, to get their their employees into, into work via North Station. Uh, but I think the route's a proven route, a proven demand. They should be looking at integrating in some way with the MBTA system and, and making it kind of more, at least from an identity perspective, be able to use your Charlie card on it and things like that. A uh, similar route is the M2 route that Harvard and the medical institutions run between Longwood Medical Area and Harvard. Uh, it goes along Massachusetts Avenue on Route 1, uh, on, on the MBTA Route 1, and a lot of times there's space on those buses and there's no, no space left on the MBTA Route 1. And if they were interchangeable in some way, uh, the, public would ha- the, the riding public would be High, you know, very much benefited by an increased frequency of service and probably less crowded vehicles as well. And sort of like an M2 in particular is sort of you know a limited stop version of the one in a lot of places, right? That's right. Yeah. 
and it's and it's so so for example the the MBTA runs its own limited stop version CT1 so potentially the CT1 resources could be put on the one to make it work better for the full length and then the limited stop service could be the M2 so uh, there, there's a lot of different variations, but it all hinges on making an agreement with the private sector on sharing of costs and revenues and, and, and allowing the fair media, the Charlie system, to, to work on these private vehicles. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, one of the things we, we just touched on is I'm a big fan of limited stop services, and I think you know, they can fill big gaps. And, and you know, I think it seems to me that... And, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. It seems to me, in, in my work, that people want to get somewhere as efficiently as possible, and they're willing to walk further to a route that's freak, very frequent and is faster. Yeah. And so, but the T doesn't really have limit. You know, the limited stop service they do have the CT one, two, and three are kind of they're not really limited stop, and they still have a lot of traffic. And, yeah, it's a big debate in the transit industry. Really, uh, there's there's different market segments. There, the are young younger people who want to get there fast are willing to walk. Older folks who who uh, can't walk that far uh, don't want to walk for a long way to get to the stop. So, um, uh, the MBTA has to serve both of those. Uh, the private services don't necessarily have to serve both of those. Um, so. I, I know that in cities across the country, like Chicago and Los Angeles, there's been very uh, varied responses to the introduction of limited stop services. And in Chicago, they were they were all the rage for a while. Then they got rid of them all, and now they're bringing them back. And and so uh, it's uh, it, it's on the same route on the same corridor. It's not easy to operate efficiently both routes. You, you, uh, there, there are kind of rules of thumb and and uh, a lot of uh, issues with operating them so that they both, both the local route and the limited stop route are as productive. And it's very difficult to get rid of all the local stops. That's that's the thing because. Because of these different markets, right? So you'd have to have duplicate services, yeah. And then, yeah. yeah. Um, and then this is something that, we, that we've talked about a lot. That this gets into is the, especially with high frequency services, is uh, the operations. And we, you know, you and I have talked a lot over the years about the uh, the operations side yeah. of aspects of it. Um, what are what are some of the things that um, really could be worked on to improve the the way the service is, is delivered, both on the, maybe on the street, maybe the city side, and also on the MBTA side. Yeah. Um, well, I think the most important thing is uh, using all the electronic information you have available to to have control at the two terminals at the at both ends of the route, so that the buses either we if if it's a high frequency service if they leave at an even headway, uh, and no matter what their schedule says that you want to you want to have the buses as evenly spaced as possible when they leave the terminal. Uh, because that cuts down on uh, the amount of bus bunching that actually happens later on, uh, and then so it's more important to to have you know eight, seven minutes apart or X minutes apart than the schedule. Yeah, that's you, right. Maybe you don't even that's need a schedule. Right. That's right. And if it's on on a schedule, if it's a every twenty minute bus, then it is important that they leave on time uh, and that there's enough 
enough time in the schedule so that each trip can leave on time, uh, that they're not so late that they can't they can't be on time. Uh, so so both are important depending on the, 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 the frequency of service. The other issue is, you know, trying to get around traffic hot spots and traffic congestion spots, and uh, that's a little more difficult because you need you need uh, uh, good signal priority, or you need some reserved lanes near, near you know, they're like bus queue jumping lanes and things like that, and so the city and the and the transit system have to work together on that and make sure that. Tr- Everybody it benefits from it, not not, and and it's it's kind of optimized for the intersect each intersection. So, Are there, do you have some examples or maybe just just a, something so that people can just so we can help people kind of visualize what we're talking about when we talk about you know we talk about bus lanes or signal priority or queue jump lanes, and I think a lot of times people don't really understand how these things work. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple in the sense of. Everybody knows what it's like to sit for two or three life cycles in their car, uh, and the buses are experiencing that and a little bit more because they also have to stop usually at that intersection to let people on and off. So, so in many cases, they stop, let people on and off, and then they miss the light and they have to wait some more. You know, uh, so it's it's the appropriate uh, sighting of the bus stops. Uh, it's the type of uh, uh, way of holding a green or as a bus approaches an intersection where it doesn't have to stop it the gr- the green doesn't the green light doesn't change to red for the bus um, and traffic benefits from that as well who the pe- people that don't benefit are the cross street traffic uh, so generally signal priority helps the the main street where the bus is on, and it hurts the the streets that are crossing. And you can't, you you know, there's always a little bit of winner and loser thing here, and mm-hmm. and you have to just make sure that the people who are are waiting a little bit longer on the cross streets, it it doesn't have have uh, down you know upstream and downstream benef- disbenefits that are too too great for them. Basically, like, so it works well on something like Route 1, but maybe like Route 66 where you're crossing like what, 47, you know, where yeah, you're crossing a lot of, of minor... Yeah, it's, it's maybe a little bit more difficult, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I think that all those priority schemes are much more much more detailed planning has to go into them uh, than something... Uh, which I mentioned before, the control of the bus leave time at the terminals has a lot of the benefits uh, because because basically it spaces the buses out so that uh, uh, the same number of people get on each bus and and the bus that's got a big gap doesn't have an uh, it doesn't get so crowded so early in the route that it has to slow down so much because a crowded bus means more and more more people are getting on and off at every stop and then it becomes even slower. Mm-hmm. Right, and you might have a bus with like 70 people and then the one behind it has 30 and yeah. it's uneven. Yeah. Um, what, what about managing it during the route? Is there, are there things that can be done to, um, to man, you know, I've heard maybe the team needs more staff or maybe there's technology, yeah. but what can be done like when the bus, you know, just gets wildly off schedule in the middle of the route? Yeah. I, 
I think it's a more difficult problem, and sometimes the reaction is uh, is worse than the than the problem itself. Uh, so, so I think that uh, I, I guess I would say that there's there, there is a possibility that drivers would self-regulate because the drivers, if they know if they can see the gaps, they they tend. The, the best drivers tend to slow down and, and catch up when they see there's a big gap. Um, I, I think it's difficult to have external people influencing that in the middle of the route. And so I would say if the T have resources to, to put in better supervision, it should be at the terminals. And uh, that's a big problem we know now, right? I mean, yeah. there's a lot of routes that aren't leaving on time. Yeah. We're leaving early. <laughs> I've had that. Yeah. Um, so the T, I, I heard recently the T was doing a is doing a process in South Boston. There have been a lot of complaints from neighbors over the years about, uh, and especially this past winter, about uh, bus service being too crowded as the population has grown in the area and um, it's it operates irregularly. You know, it's a, a lot of the same issues that, that we see all over the place. Um, and the T went out and basically proposed uh, to do some stop consolidation as the primary impetus of, of improving the service. Um, and it, it wasn't very well received to the public. And I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts. And I, you know, I've, I've also represented the T in the process of doing stop consolidation. So I, you know, sort of, but I have mixed feelings on it. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on stop consolidation as a as a an effort. Yeah, I, I. Um I don't have strong feelings about the stop consolidation. Obviously, I, I feel like um, a bus should not stop every, you know, uh, every seven hundred feet. Yeah, seven hundred <laughs> feet or every little block. Uh, you know, the less stops, the better. Uh, but there's trade-offs, as I said, about the different market segments. The, the elderly people cannot walk too much. Uh, I, I find that. In many cases, the stop consolidation doesn't have a huge impact because what happens is the little used stops are the ones that are consolidated. So if a, st- if a stop is not used, uh, then skipping it doesn't make any difference you know, mm-hmm. in, in terms of the operation. So uh, if it's used you know, every fifth trip, then that, that, that every fifth trip is benefited. Uh, so I think that in many cases, the, the MBTA and a lot of transit authorities have too many stops, uh, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a strategy that has, has more limited benefits unless you're really talking about changing to, from every tenth of a mile to every quarter mile, which in, in which case you'd get a lot of resistance. So, um, you know... On a, on a rail system like the light rail system on the B branch or something like that where they have to stop anyway they're always stopping maybe it makes more sense uh, but in the bus system if there's nobody that uses the stop they don't stop so I'm, I'm it's not a bad strategy it's just not as it's, it shouldn't be the whole strategy that, that improves reliability and a lot of times you see that the addition of stops over time is sort of politically driven because somebody knows somebody and they want to, you know, they want to yeah. stop. And so you see that. And but I, I wonder how the public process affects a lot of what of what is happening and, and needs to be done. I mean, 
um, particularly with with the, the understanding that the MBTA hasn't really changed over the years. Um, yeah. And I wonder, you know, you talk about maybe filling some gaps or looking at different opportunities with uh, public-private partnerships. How does the public process play into that? Or does it? I mean, is it kind of the same, you know, like with the Keolis commuter rail? Or I mean, I, I think anytime you're expanding service, no matter how you're expanding it, the public will be for that, unless it's maybe somebody who doesn't want to stop in front of their house. Uh, mm-hmm. But but generally, uh, uh, you know, if you're talking about a strategy that expands service, uh, there's usually not a lot of public opposition. Right. So I, I'm not sure. I mean... The locating, location of stops is somewhat political, and you know uh, we've seen, for example, the, the relocation of the stop on the other side of Mass Ave in Boston because of a safety issue for bicycles. That should that stop should have been moved years and years ago to the other side of Beacon Street. Uh, just because of the, just because of, because of the signal, right. yeah, and <laughs> right. because of all the right-turning vehicles, you know, mm-hmm. it, regardless of whether they're bicycles or not, it should have been on the other side. But because of the abutters, it was never moved. So that that is there are there is some political process there, but it's all this not in my backyard kind of political stuff, and and I think that the MBTA people are very aware of that, and they try to do to do it so it's most most efficient. Um, but sometimes it takes an impetus like a bicycle accident, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So I want to get your take before we finish up on uh, the, the funding question. This is always come always comes up, and I think I think everything always comes back to funding. Um, you know, I've heard I, uh, I know uh, we interviewed uh, Jamel Luisi recently, and he, my former Secretary of Transportation, and he, he's a big proponent of, uh, of the VMT tax um, or the, the fee. It's a fee, not a tax. Um, and then you know the people pushing different things, and um, and then we hear from the cities that you know well there's nothing we can do, but the cities are supportive, but the state you know it's this weird. I mean, what are there are there any good ways to or maybe some innovative ways that people haven't been talking about to try to fund the T, or is is there anything you'd like to pitch for? Um, I mean, I guess I would I would say one that's not talked about a lot is a is a regional parking tax. A regional tax on all parking that that is not residential, uh, oh, and perhaps even residential, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that that you know is it's it's kind of the inverse of of public transit, you know, and and so uh, parking pricing for commercial parking has gone through the roof these days, and why shouldn't the public sector? Uh, and the transit system get a piece of that as opposed to just going into the owner's pocket. So I guess I would I would think that that, that is something that should be looked at a little bit more carefully. I, I always you know laugh at the issue of of uh, gas taxes. I mean uh, it, it's a it's a you know it's a big political issue, but. Frankly, our gas prices go up and down by a dollar or more yearly, and and uh, you know right. another ten cents for transit in the gas tax would hardly be noticed really by most people. Yeah. And so uh, I, I I don't know which which is best. Uh, I I don't really you know 
I don't really understand all the political ramifications of each one. All, all I know is that the, the transit expansions have been starved in this region for, for many years, and, and the, the need for it and the growth in ridership uh, dictates that there, there be some expansion. Are there other cities that are doing interesting things? Are there, there are things that we should look to for? San Francisco has been expanding services significantly, and it's a similar similar city as, as we we have here. Um, a, a pretty high mode split, a good transit system, and they've been able to identify resources to expand their services. And they've been putting in limited stop services. They've been putting faster services on the street. Uh, and uh, I think that that's a model that people should look at. Portland, Oregon, uh, a lot of the West Coast properties have been have been very successful. One thing they have out there is referendum, which we don't have uh, sometimes, but I'm not sure exactly how each of these cities identify. I know that Portland's passed a business tax recently um, and so that the, the business uh, folks have have paid a little bit in, into their system, but I'm not sure what the what the real answer is for for the funding source. I, I just feel that the demand and the the growth. If we want to continue growth in the Boston area, there's got to be more money for public transit. And how, and how do we? I'm curious how we get there because we you know we saw last year that we had that ballot initiative, which was seemed like such a basic thing in my mind of, you know, a little, it's like a little gas tax, indexing the gas tax to inflation to pay for, you yeah. know, just invest things that we need, and it wasn't even, you know, really grand. But, I, I mean, so, and then we, we get we get this whenever we talk about expanding transit, people say, oh, there's no money, and I, my experience kind of tells me that there's always money for whatever yeah. the political will wants there to be money for. Um, so it tells so me that we're not be, there yet. I think what people object to is Paying more for the same not so great service, uh, and so I think we do need a a campaign that says these are the things that could be improved with X amount of dollars, and so sh- show some transparency on what the increased funding is used for. And I think that people would respond positively to that, but you need a political leader to kind of take that on or, or an advocacy group that with a lot of political muscle to do that. Uh, but it has to be a, a future plan that shows improvements, not just paying a lot more for the same thing. I think that's, maybe that's the problem that we're in. Yeah. Right, we got to talk about the that's, state of good repair, but that, it's like, it's that's just right. that. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, thanks so much for doing this. Okay. Um, we Is there a place that people can find out more about your work? Uh... I, I, I'm, 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 here, I'm, I'm here at the Transit Lab at MIT. Uh, uh, so if you, uh, I, we we have, uh, I, I don't even remember the website. So I'm we'll sorry. Put a link, we'll put a link to it. So. Okay. All right, John Anucci, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. To that on the site, and it's just me here today. Uh, just wrapping up. Going to be a short show. Uh, because I'm flying solo this this week or month or whatever it is. Um, I just wanted to let you know that uh, a couple things coming up. We have a very exciting uh, sort of a launch event. So our first really big event. Um, we're going to be having uh, Governor, former Governor Michael Dukakis on Wednesday at our Beer in Transit. This is uh, Wednesday, October 28th. So 
this Wednesday if you're listening to the show when it's first coming out. And uh, it's going to be at the Merchant at, on uh, 60, it's 60 Franklin Street in downtown Boston, uh, right on the corner of Franklin and Arch Street um, by Downtown Crossing. So um, stop on by. It's going to start. We're going to start uh, having people come on in at 5 o'clock. And uh, talk is going to be probably uh, around 5.30 or 6 o'clock. So um, you're going to find out. You can find out also about what's going on with Transit Matters, what we're working on. Um, we are looking for people to help with some of our advocacy work and uh, other miscellaneous things, uh, organizing events, all kinds of things. So if you're interested in that, in helping out in any way, um, please get in touch. Um, you can just email me, Jeremy, at transitmatters.info. And uh, upcoming shows, we have we have a couple of exciting guests coming up. We're going to be talking to Jeff Wood from the Overhead Wire um, out of uh, California. And... We have also uh, Fred Salvucci coming up, uh, also at MIT, although many of you may know him as a former um, uh, Secretary of uh, Transportation back in the in the 80s under Governor Dukakis when the state was actually expanding transit. And, uh, you know, we we're uh, trying to learn some things and move forward and uh, not going to necessarily copy what we did back in the 80s, but... You know, we're trying to uh, to make progress. And on Wednesday, uh, Governor Dukakis is really going to be talking about uh, the North-South Rail Link, which is uh, something that we, we talked about on the Commuter Rail show in the last podcast. Uh, so I won't go into too much detail about it. But uh, basically, it's connecting North and South stations and uh, having commuter rail trains run through um, so that the it opens up the entire city to the entire region and with the and it enables expansion of commuter rail service which right now is impossible because of south station capacity and uh it, it most importantly i think it creates a new transit option in the city center because you have all these commuter rail lines that are running once an hour and when they their combined frequency gives you 10 minute or better service on a core segment like say from back bay to south station and north station and a new station that's supposed to go in between um there's other aspects too but it's, i think it's a really important project for us to to move forward and to really make commuter rail uh, much more useful for both local and regional travel uh, the last thing i want to plug today is actually not not true that's the second to last thing i want to plug today is uh, i spoke at a panel this past saturday uh, sponsored by a group called budget for all which is advocating for a uh, increased funding for public services uh, and infrastructure and basically um, they're kind of working on the federal level but also working a lot with the state house there's a hearing coming up this wednesday i believe uh, i'm not going to be able to be there but uh, if you want to go and testify about the importance of public services you can find out more about them at uh, budgetforallmass.org and um I will put a link. Actually, I will. I think I will post the discussion as a as a podcast episode, so you can check that out. It should be the next show, and uh, you can hear my discussion as well as uh, the whole thing. Really, if if you want, um, I spoke on the first panel. So, uh, last thing I want to I just want to plug a couple of events coming up that I think people will be interested in. Um, we have here. So, in addition to our, as I said, our beer and transit this Wednesday at five p.m. There's also Walk Boston is hosting a technology and walkability panel 
um, using technology to improve the walking environment. That's uh, this Monday, uh, today, as, as this podcast is going out. And uh, on Tuesday, tomorrow, the city is hosting the Imagine Boston 2030 open house. And this is from 4 to 7. I think there's going to be a presentation at 6. Um, this is the bowling building and Dudley Square. Uh, I might have made up that presentation part. Maybe there's none. Um, this is kind of similar to the Go Boston 2030 plan for transportation. It's sort of, you know, thinking, uh, having a, a, a future plan. And, um, you know, the, the I said, said in there that the city of Boston is, uh, for the first time in 50 years, having a future plan, uh, which is very exciting. And, uh, you know, it's nice to see the city thinking about stuff strategically and not just, uh, you know, going forward with the motions. Um, as I said, on Wednesday, there's that state house hearing and the Bureau in Transit. Uh, and Thursday, if you're a member of uh, ACE, the parent of the T-Riders Union, uh, they're having an annual meeting Thursday night. And there's going to be, uh, if you're into biking, there's going to be a bike party, Halloween ride Saturday night at 7 p.m., uh, that's going to be fun. And next week, there is going Livable Streets is hosting a street talk event on Tuesday, November 3rd, which is also Election Day. So go vote. Um, and they, yeah, so Livable Streets is going to be talking about the Emerald Network, which is their um, proposed, actually partially completed network of paths uh, around the city. And, you know, we have, if you look at the, the maps that they have, it's very compelling. There are a lot of um, paths that, that serve an important role in connecting the region, but the network is really incomplete. Um, and so you have things like the Charles River Path that goes all the way out, but then you have a lot of missing links. Um, and notably, it doesn't even connect to the Southwest Corridor Path, which is like five blocks away. Um, lots of stuff like that and uh, all over the city and all kinds of different neighborhoods. And uh, so they're working on that. It's, uh, it's called the Landline Coalition, I believe. And there's also on November 3rd, there is the, the State's Moving Together Conference. Uh, this is not free. I think you have to pay $100 maybe um, to get in, but it's a it's an interesting event. Um, a lot of talk about uh, transportation, innovation, and, um, and planning and strategic, strategic planning for transportation, basically. Um, in... Let's see, uh, what else we got here? On uh, Wednesday, the Cambridge Transit Committee. If anybody is uh, lives in Cambridge, suggest you try to come to the Cambridge Transit Advisory Committee or at least email me to find out more about it. I sit on the committee, and um, if you're interested in tra working on transit issues uh, in Cambridge, that's a, it's a pretty good place to start. Um, excuse me, that um, Mass Dot Moving Together Conference is actually on Wednesday, um, but there is an event on Tuesday night. It's like a, it's a pre- yeah, it's a walk and a social hour put on at 5 p.m. That's going to meet outside Park Plaza on Stewart and Charles um, by the Hubway Station. And that should be a, it's an interesting walk around the city uh, talking about a lot of these things, um, street design. And, you know, there will definitely be opportunities for uh, talking about transit as well. Um, and then Wednesday, um, on Wednesdays, there is an event, there's a series uh, called called Fixing the T. It's part of a Planes, Trains, and Automobiles series. And they... So this is at Harvard Kennedy School. And this is every... About every Wednesday at 4.15 p.m. Um, check the uh, Harvard Kennedy School website. It's the best place you can find out more about that. Um, it's an ongoing series. I saw Frank DePaula recently. Stephanie Pollock's book. Uh, there are a number of other people that uh, of interest. So uh, check that out.
Okay, thanks again for listening today, and I hope I provided some value. This has been the Transit Matters Podcast, episode 18. You can find out more about us at transitmatters.info and check out uh, all of the, the information over there and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. You can email feedback at transitmatters.info. And we, yeah, we do love hearing from you. So you should, uh, yeah, please do that. Um, also encourage, uh, if you aren't following it yet, um, subscribe to the daily download from Commonwealth Magazine. And uh, they have a lot of great news. Uh, you get an email every day. And it's a, it's a good way to keep in touch with what's going on. Um, so do that. Um, like I said, please uh, contact us, get involved uh, in whatever way you can. And uh, we hope to see you on Wednesday at uh, Beer and Transit. Also, I should tell you that you can follow me at Critical Transit on Twitter. And you can follow, if you follow Transit Matters, it is sometimes me. And it is uh, very often Mark Ibunya, who is one of the other uh, co-hosts here at the at this uh, very podcast and uh, mark and josh will be back uh, next time and for now i'm uh, jeremy mendelson and i am signing out and we will see you on wednesday at 5 p.m at the merchant at 60 franklin street in downtown boston we're going to finish up today with a uh, sound from an artist called jarzo uh, you can find him at soundcloud.com slash j-a-r-z zero and uh, I'm playing this because this is a tune called No Entry, which is made up entirely of sounds from the MBTA. Um, yeah, so like I've been looking for a while of sounds of trains pulling in and things like that, and I have some of my own. Um, but it's uh, I think this is interesting. So uh, enjoy. Enjoy.